Keller could see the future. The future? You murdered the future. That's negative, Cam. Defeatist. Disappoints me to hear you talk that way. You're starting to sound like them. There's a whole generation of scanner soldiers just a few months away from being born. We'll find them, train them to be like us. Not like Obris and their band of cripples. We'll bring the world of normals to their knees. Rule an empire so brilliant, so glorious. We'll be the envy of the whole planet. You sound just like him. Like Ruth. No, not like him. Like Rack! Daryl Rack! I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Now, fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you want to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. Our March theme of mental gymnastics just keeps moving on, and that's our selection of some films that feature a variety of powers emanating from the human mind. This week, the LSCE goes body horror meets conspiracy thriller, screening the 1981 cult classic, Scanners. Join us! This week's film is yet another movie that, to my shame, I spent my formative movie-watching years breezing right by at the video store countless of times, never even giving it a single glance. I really didn't pay too much attention back in the day, which I will admit is a complete flaw on my part. My only exposure to the title itself at the time was a throwaway joke that was made by the crew in the 1994 comedy Wayne's World, when the character of Garth Algar, as played by Dana Carvey, is left alone on stage, and the crew comment that his panic attack is reminiscent of the exploding head found in this week's film. Now, when I started getting into Cronenberg at first, it was mainly with his mainstream offering the 1986 remake of The Fly, which I thought was fantastic, but at the time it didn't really light a spark under me to go and seek out his other work. No, like so many things, that would come when I went to college, and I found myself under the tutelage of the mighty Xerxes, who was horrified I had not yet seen this week's film, and just figured that I needed to take a trip out to the local Best Buy and remedy that. And Indeed, I did, and I ended up securing a rather affordable copy of the film for myself to screen, and I was 
quite pleased with the end results. But honestly, if we're going to talk about scanners, we need to first put ourselves in the same headspace that writer-director David Cronenberg was in back in 1980. Now, we've talked about Cronenberg back when we covered his 1975 body horror film, Shivers, all the way back in episode 62. That was a fun one. During the interim, Cronenberg had been really making a name for himself, able to put out cheap but successful little horror pictures, which included two more body horror films, 1977's Rabid, that one's a classic, and the amazing 1979 flick, The Brood. He had a departure, though, from his usual fare, releasing the action-packed B-level racing film that same year with the movie Fast Company. All three were very well-received and made money for their distributors, but Cronenberg was looking for his next project, and he was trying to figure out just exactly what to pitch to make a new horror movie. No. One thing you have to understand when it comes to the film Scanners is that Cronenberg was inspired by the very real, very sad thalidomide scandal that had taken place in the late 1950s, mainly in the UK and in Canada. Yeah, that's the thing that Billy Joel mentions in one of the stanzas of We Didn't Start the Fire. It's a horrific medical tragedy. The drug was originally created to be used as a sedative, and it was initially created by a Swiss pharmaceutical company, and then the patent itself got acquired by a German company, Chemie Ruthenol, in the early 1950s. It was marketed first as a useful drug for morning sickness to be used by pregnant women, but here's the problem, it had never been properly tested on anyone who was actually pregnant before it was put on the market. And what would result would be a wave of horrific birth defects that affected close to 10,000 newborns across the West. Children would be stillborn, and those who weren't were malformed. Those who did live were born with defects commonly happening with their limbs, eyes, cardiovascular systems, and urinary tracts. Focomelia was common when it came to the limbs of these children. They would have fused fingers, toes, or they would create children who would have stubby, flipper-like appendages instead of functional arms, legs, hands, or feet. In some cases, they would be missing bones completely. Again, it's a tragedy and a scandal for the day. And yet, it would be this that was the idea that Cronenberg would start to think might be a good jumping off point for his next script. What if there was a drug out there, similar in concept to thalidomide? It would be given to pregnant women, and then the children of these women who received the drug, instead of horrific things happening to them, they would develop special powers rather than crippling birth defects. And it's from that germ that scanners would be born. Cronenberg had claimed early on that he had written, at least up until this point, four to five different drafts of the scanner story itself. He had tried to recycle material that he had started penning early on as his days as a young film student, back when he was writing stories that would get made into some of his earliest works, stuff like 1969's Stereo and 1970's Crimes of the Future. 
Cronenberg had initially tried to merge two shorter scripts he had lying around together, The Sensitives and Telepathy 2000, massaging each of them into something that he could pitch to Roger Corman, being hopeful that he could parlay that into a low-budget horror flick. Again, this was all the claim, but don't actually let that fool you, because Cronenberg in more recent years has out and out stated that he has been writing and rewriting the script on the set of Scanners with the actors standing around. Scanners was made, as we had previously discussed back when we covered our month of Canadian films, as a pure money grab. It was Hollywood companies basically coming out to make an investment and use the tax code of the Great White North's pro-Canadian film policy that acted as a very useful tax shelter for wily investors and producers in the mid-1970s through the mid-1980s. So in short, yeah, of course it's going to be a guy like Corman who would have a silent hand in all of this. And indeed, his New World Pictures would end up being the Canadian distributor for this film. But he did pass on the opportunity to directly produce and front the money on this project himself. That instead would come from Canadian Film Development Corporation and from producer Claude Harreau, who had already helped Cronenberg complete his last picture, the disturbingly fun 1979 horror film The Brood. And yes, that and Rabbit will be future episodes for sure. Now at this time, this movie was going to be the largest budget that Cronenberg had ever worked with. He was going to get to play with $4 million to try to tell a story about what would become a battling group of scientifically created mutants who were gifted with psychic and psychokinetic powers, some of them wanting to be a force for good, with others desiring world domination. So what do you get for that? Well, you get a tense, paranoid political thriller, much like you would get with the movie Three Days of the Condor, but instead of having Robert Redford running around to uncover a group of simple spies bumping people off, now you have an uncovering of a rather grisly plot that involves, essentially, the X-Men battling one another for control. Say, that does sound pretty good. You know, people nowadays have a rather short attention span and uh, memories. Maybe uh, Disney would be interested if I sent them my spec script. Huh. Interesting. Shooting would take place starting in late October and wrapping up right before Christmas in December of 1979, with a cast who had to get accustomed to change very quickly because, again, Cronenberg was writing the script on the fly. The attached big name for this movie came with the late, great Patrick McGowan, who was cast to play the part of Dr. Paul Ruth. Now, McGowan should be well known to some of you from his amazing work, first as John Drake in the early 1960s action series Danger Man, and then starring in the iconic role as number six in the original 1967 series The Prisoner. Excellent show. But if you're like me, you first came about on Mr. McGowan's Majesty by having a kid sister who is obsessed with watching the 1963 Disney film The Three Lives of Thomasina, where he played the prickly but good-hearted country veterinarian Dr. Andrew McDoohy. Or later, when he showed up in the not-so-great 1985 Bill Norton dinosaur film Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. 
Now that's a movie that stands out particularly to me because I distinctly did not warn my older cousin Andrea what was going to happen when we watched it together back in 1990. And she took great umbrage early on in the film when McGowan, playing the evil Dr. Kiviet, roughly knifes a man in the stomach. Oh, 80s PG films. Folks, you bet I miss them. Now, the second quote, well-known cast member, would actually be Jennifer O'Neill, who was known at the time for being the object of affection in the 1971 hit film, Summer of 42, but she was cast here as the leader of a group of super-powered individuals. Stephen Lack was cast in the lead role as Cameron Vale, our scanner who is sent on a mission, only to uncover a deeper conspiracy. Lack at the time was known for being in some smaller Canadian films, like 1977's The Angel and the Woman, The Rubber Gun, and of course 1980's horror film Head On. Lawrence Dane, who was cast here as the slimy head of Consec security, Braden Keller, he had worked on a number of small Canadian films as well, and he had just finished appearing with Lack in the previously mentioned Head On. So you got some people that know each other. That's good, right? A 29-year-old Michael Ironside was cast as our story's main villain, Daryl Revick, and this was a big part for him. Ironside has been in multiple films up to this point, notably having small parts in a number of horror films and small comedies, but this was really a great part that allowed him to chew the scenery and get views. Initially, one of the original versions of the script he was just going to play the part of Daryl Revick, only shown in black and white flashbacks, and, you know, using the motif of this was a filmed experiment. We talked to a patient, he's showing up as that patient. But Cronenberg loved so much what the actor was doing on screen, he then decided to keep writing and expanding the part, giving Ironside more and more things to do. The part that worried him, though, when it came time to film the exploding head scene, Ironside was very uncomfortable, and here's why. That iconic scene is one that people associate with this film. It's the one they remember, and it's the one that sticks out even if they haven't seen this film. And it's where a gentleman who's getting scanned has his head explode, all in marvelous Technicolor glory. Now, this effect was achieved through careful planning, and at first, it was to be made as a two-shot trick. The crew would be mocking up a life cast of actor Louis Del Grand, and then they would load that head up with, you know, wax, bits of latex, fake blood, ground meat, dog food, pig bladders, chicken livers, and gelatins standing in for brains. Then, rather simplistically, they were going to blow the head up with a shotgun blast from behind. They'll film it, they'll get the shot of the head exploding in slow-mo, it'll all go great. Sounds fine, right? What's the problem? Well, since it was going to be a two-shot setup, they would have the camera filming the head exploding head-on, with another camera cross-posed to catch Michael Ironside and his reaction. So, he would be sitting next to the fake head that was going to be exploded by a shotgun blast. Ironside 
was not comfortable sitting next to a head that was about to be shot with a shotgun, with only a thin piece of plexiglass separating him from the very real weapon that was being fired. And you need to put it in context. Michael Ironside was an up-and-coming actor, and he viewed himself as a nobody at the time. He really needed this job. This was all before he was on the hit miniseries and follow-up TV show, V, and it was long before his turn as a villain in things like Extreme Prejudice, Total Recall, and Highlander 2. And for working on Scanners, Ironside was being paid $5,000 to do the entirety of this movie. Not exactly what one would consider to be hazard pay, but he needed the job. Knowing that this was going to be shot, and that he had to be sitting next to this mock-up dummy while someone slowly filmed a shotgun blast, he started to worry that something would go wrong, and that he would be on the receiving end of the firearm. Consulting with his agent, Ironside was told, hey, just ask production for insurance, and then they'll know you're serious about your safety. So Ironside approached the film's producer, Claude Harrow, and asked him, can I get a million dollars of insurance for this stunt? Harrow thinks he's crazy and says, no, we're not going to do that. First, we don't have it in the budget. So Ironside lays down the law and he says, I'm not sitting next to a dummy that you're firing a shotgun at. You can do the shot without me. And to his credit, Director Cronenberg agreed, that's fine, if you feel uncomfortable, you don't have to do it. So they focused on only getting the extreme close-up, the head-on shot of the head exploding. And all parties immediately realized what a sound decision that was. Because when the gun went off and the cast blew that head up perfectly on camera, it gave all of the appropriate gory effects that the crew were aiming for. And it also sent Buckshot through the plexiglass and into the glass and chair that Ironside would have been sitting in had he stayed there. Good thinking. Now, production would end up wrapping on the film in December of 1979, but Cronenberg didn't like the final confrontation that he shot between Stephen Lack and Michael Ironside. So their scanner characters end the film by duking it out by way of their mind powers. So what he did was he called both of the actors back to meet with him in May of 1980 to get reshoots done. And he got famed special effects artist Dick Smith, who had worked on oh, a number of minor films like The Godfather and The Exorcist, you know, little ones like that, to come in and assist. This was really a stroke of luck for Cronenberg, because the studio had temporarily been in shutdown mode um, on production for Ken Russell's Altered States, and that left Smith cooling his heels needing a gig in between setup. So this was a perfect time for him to come and to do some cool effect work for Cronenberg. So that added a bunch of fun and weird gore to this final scene. He created a bunch of skin bladders that would make veins appear to pop out on both the actors. He fitted Ironside with sclera contacts that would turn his eyes into a disturbing pure white during this battle. There was a problem though. You see, at Ironside's feet was this flame bar, which is a fancy way of just saying they rigged a flamethrower to shoot fire directly up, right in front of the actor, making it appear as if flames were coming all around him in the eyes of the camera. It's a really great shot, 
but the intense heat from that flame bar dried out Ironside's eyes, and it caused those specialty contacts to adhere to his eyeballs, which led to, when the makeup assistant went to remove them, they scratched and damaged the actor's corneas when they took them off. Needing a new option now that they've really hurt the man's eyes, they still did get the iconic shot with the white eyes. For Pete's sake, it's the film's poster. But what they would do is need to get softer, gas-permeable contacts that they could work with that would convey something had changed when they shot the iconic shock ending. And so Smith, improvising, dug deep into his makeup bag and decided that he would reuse the same intense blue-eyed contacts that he had had Dustin Hoffman wear for a 1970 film, Little Big Man, great movie, over a decade earlier. And that is what they used to cement that final shock reveal. But folks... I've been gassing on way too long. How's about I shut up my yappin' and we get to that trailer? What do you say? I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. There are four billion people on Earth. 237 are scanners. They'll control your mind, conquer your will, manipulate your body like a toy. Self-destruct. Five seconds. The pain begins. In your flesh. In your brain. Four seconds. You feel its power. Three seconds. The pressure. The pounding. The terror. Two seconds. You can't breathe. It chokes you. It destroys you. One second. You begin to self-destruct. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. You pray it will end, and it will. Scanners. Their thoughts can kill. We open on a raggedy man. Cameron Vale, as played by Stephen Lack, meandering around a mall food court, bumming cigarettes and scrounging the half-finished food left over from previous diners. His apparent homelessness and unkempt appearance elicits looks of disgust and unkind comments from two older women who are having a meal nearby. When Vale turns his attention on one of the more discourteous of the ladies, she begins to have violent shaking and starts to suffer from a massive seizure, brought on seemingly by Vale himself. Vale is apparently in pain from where he sits. He bites his hands and he tries to cover his eyes, as if desperately trying to stop what is occurring. A crowd forms around and attempts to assist the woman, but Vale stands and exits the food court only to be chased by two men in trench coats who have been watching him this entire time from a distance. As he attempts to evade them up the escalator, he is shot with a tranquilizer dart and eventually passes out. Vale wakes to find himself tied down on a medical cot, his clothes cleaned, his wounds bandaged. A man approaches him, revealing himself to be Dr. Paul Ruth, as played by Patrick McGowan who explains to Vale his condition is brought on by being a scanner, and then he shows him just how powerful he can be, calling in an entire group of people to walk into the room and take a seat. 
which reveals to us that Cameron can hear all of their inner thoughts, read all of their minds at once. But the strain of having so many individual thoughts being perceived causes Cameron to begin to convulse and sweat with pain. Ruth monitors his reaction for a time and then relieves the young man's uncomfortableness with an injection of a drug called ephemeral, which blocks Vale's ability to scan and allows him to have mental clarity. At the same time Cameron was under Ruth's care, a man named Daryl Revick, is played by Michael Ironside, attends a marketing event for the private security company Consec. It's here that a trained Consec scanner, as played by Louis Del Grande, is attempting to demonstrate the power and the usefulness of a scanner's ability, all for potential investors. When asking for volunteers, it's Revic who goes up first. I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. I must remind you that the scanning experience is usually a painful one, sometimes resulting in nosebleeds, earaches, stomach cramps, nausea, sometimes other symptoms of a similar nature. There's a doctor present, Dr. Gatineau. I know that you've all been prepared for this, but I thought I'd just remind you just the same. Uh, there is one other thing. No one is to leave this room once the demonstration has begun. At this point, I'd like to call for volunteers. Anyone, doesn't matter. something specific, something that will not breach the security of your organization, and that you will not object to having disclosed to this group. Something uh, personal, perhaps. All right. Yes, I have something. Do I have to close my eyes? It doesn't matter. All right, yes, I have something. Revic, to the horror of the crowd, does not do what he was instructed, and instead takes the opportunity to very publicly assassinate the Consec employee, using his own scanning abilities to psychokinetically blow apart the man's head, causing mass panic in the room. Revic is grabbed by security, who attempt to give him a shot of ephemeral, but the scanner uses his abilities to force the doctor administering the drug to give himself the injection, which allows Revic to retain full control of his powers. On his way to be transported to Consec's remote research facility, Revic causes a fiery car crash that kills all of his captors, escaping into the night. The result the following morning Consex president, Mr. Trevelyan, as played by Maver Moore, puts control of the company's security management under a man named Braden Keller, as played by Lawrence Dane, who announces that his first plan is to give up and eliminate the scanner program. Instead, they're going to focus on what they're good at. Weapons development, technology, classic security, 
telling the rest of the board that they should leave the training of dolphins and the creation of telepathic freaks to others. Dr. Ruth, when asked his opinion, decides to school Keller on a few points, showing him that his arrogance is quite apparent and reveals that Dr. Ruth knows who attacked him and offers up a counter plan on how to stop him. Mr. Keller, who composed our audience last night? We had 25 financial and political VIPs from all over North America. Were these VIPs carefully screened? The screening process used was very sophisticated, yes. And yet an assassin managed to infiltrate this group? Yes. And killed six of our people? Yes. How did he kill them? We have reason to believe he used scanning techniques. Then do you suggest, uh, Mr. Keller, that this highly skilled assassin, very deadly, who embarrassed us all in front of the community we were trying to impress, was himself a scanner? We believe so, yes. Well, that gentleman is uh, my response. The weapons capability of these uh, um, telepathic... Uh, Curiosities? Is obvious. If I may, Doctor, your program is based on a list of 236 known scanners, is it not? It is. Of that number, of that number, how many are now working with us? As of last night, none. Well then, we don't even have a program to drop, do we? It shouldn't be very painful for anyone. Concept surveillance has gradually lost contact with all the names on our list. And I, I submit that this, this is not an accident. I think we've lost them to a program far in advance of ours. In my study of the situation, I've come to the conclusion that there is a scanner underground developed in North America. It has an organization, it's well motivated, and it has a leader. Now, that's ridiculous, Doctor. You can't get two of them to sit in the same room together without going berserk. You're making a very provocative allegation, Dr. Ruth. Who controls this group? If you study the descriptions of this report, you will find that you probably met him last night. His name is Darrell Rebuck. And he was on our list. This is total fiction. Mr. Trevelyan, I... A moment, Mr. Keller. What do you suggest down here? Eliminate the competition. How? Contact a scanner who is as yet unknown to the underground, convert him to our cause, and then send him out to infiltrate the underground. Ruth goes back to Cameron and begins to explain to him just how he can utilize his own powers and then fills him in on the history of scanners, how they possess an unknown medical condition that gives them all ESP, and how Ruth, as a psychopharmacist, has spent his life studying them. Ruth tells him about ephemeral, how it's a chemical component that won't affect non-scanners, but it does allow Vale to hear his own thoughts when he takes it, but at the cost of blocking his own telepathic abilities. He also shares with him the backstory on Daryl Revick, a man that he wants Vale to find and stop, showing him footage of a younger Revick back when he was a former patient of Dr. Ruth's, revealing that in his younger days, 
as a way to relieve the pressure of his own horrific thoughts, Revik decided that he would drill a hole in his own skull right between his own eyes to ease his pain. Ruth convinces Vale to help stop Revik by convincing him that Revik's goals of world domination make him too dangerous to live, citing his murderous methods to make his case. Vale agrees and is put through training to be able to calm his mind, as well as to control his own powers and to use them as weapons, if needed, all by Ruth. He's given new clothes and sent out to follow up on contacting members of the Scanner Underground. Now, unbeknownst to Consec personnel, Braden Keller is actually on the payroll of Revik, and he is acting as an inside man to help learn of all of Ruth's plans and how they're going to use Vale to try to stop him. Revik orchestrates a team of assassins to be sent to follow Vale, and Vale starts his journey by getting in touch with a scanner named Benjamin Pierce, as played by Robert Silverman, a man who has taken the pain of his horrible, horrible abilities, and he's instead channeled them into becoming a successful sculpting artist. After reading the mind of a gallery owner where his work is being shown, Vale learns of the artist's location, where he can find his studio. But while he's there asking questions, he feels himself getting scanned by an unknown woman, who then disappears from his view. Arriving at Pierce's studio later, Vale asks the man for his help in finding Revik, but he's understandably a little hesitant to trust Vale. I was told you were coming to pay me a visit, Mr. Vale. How did you know that? Well, I have friends. I don't want them. But I have scanner friends. What do you mean by that? I'm one of you. You're one of me. Yes. You know what I think? I think you better tell me what you really want. It's the voices in my head. They're driving me crazy. How do you stop them? Your voices. Tell me where I can find Daryl Revik. No. 
As Pierce storms out, a team of shotgun-toting assassins sent by Revic arrive, shooting the artist multiple times. Not knowing that Cameron is there, he ends up attacking the team, using his mind to hurl the killers through the walls of the studio, before heading over to check on a dying Pierce. As Pierce passes, Vale is able to telepathically read from him the name of a woman who can help him, Kim Obrist. Vale tracks Obrist down, as played by Jennifer O'Neill, and discovers that she is the woman who scanned him at the art gallery, and it's revealed that she is the leader of a small cell of scanners who oppose Revic's domination plans. They see themselves as being more than just weapons to be used by corporations like Consec. Since everybody in the room can read Cameron's mind, they all believe and trust him when he comes calling. Cameron enters and sits down to join in on a communal mind meld with Kim and another seven or so members of the group, focusing their powers together into a collective consciousness, becoming incredibly powerful, but also being very vulnerable. They are unable to detect that Revik himself is observing the meeting from across the street, and he sends in two of his remaining assassins to attack the group, who kill the lookout at the door before bursting into the apartment, opening fire and slaying a few of the members, before the group can collectively use their mental powers to set their attackers on fire, before then fleeing together in a microbus. But as they drive up the street, another van loaded with hit squad members pulls up alongside them and shoots into the microbus, leaving only Cameron and Kim in the end alive. They flee the scene and run into the night, away from the police. They end up encountering a remaining hitman, but they read his mind to see that the man is indeed working for the pharmaceutical company Biocarbon Amalgamate, and that allows Kim and Cameron to start looking for some clues. They end up breaking into the factory and disguise themselves as workers, where they learn that the company is actually creating ephemeral. And... They've been contracted to produce the drug exclusively for CONSEC under a program that is codenamed RIPE. The information is only able, though, to be accessed back at CONSEC Corporation. They also see from a distance that Daryl Revick is working in the factory's control room. Confused by all of the cross ties that they're uncovering, Vale and Obris call Dr. Ruth, requesting to come in with protection. Keller monitors this call and starts to panic that Vale could be on to his and Revik's involvement. Revik tells Keller to interview any informant that Vale brings in, and also throws in the order to eliminate Dr. Ruth if the man finds out anything else about their project. Ruth, though, seems to have his own suspicions, and when Keller insists on interrogating Kim alone, the doctor reveals to Cameron that the ephemeral that were injected into both him and Obrist, that was simply water. He wants both Kim and Cameron to be able to defend themselves just in case. Cameron, in turn, has some hard questions for Ruth, although he finds out that Ruth was indeed the founder of Biocarbon and Amalgamate. He sold it to Consec, hence why he now works for them, but he claims to have no knowledge of what the company actually makes still, postulating that he thinks they're still making chemical weapons. Vale points out that it's that company that makes Ephemeral, and what's more, it's being run by Revic. 
and Vale notes that they've been shipping ephemeral out in huge tankers, but where it's going, that's a mystery. Since Consec inspired the program, Vale and Ruth conclude that they have an inside man here, who must be working with Revic, and they need to ferret out exactly who it is. Ruth himself doesn't have computer clearance to use Consec's consoles, but he encourages Vale to get to the bottom of everything, being visibly disturbed by what he's hearing. He instructs Vale to use his scanning ability to read the computer network, just as if he would read another person, use his consciousness, and then store any information he finds directly in his own mind. In the other interrogation room, Keller is talking to Kim, trying to manipulate her into disclosing just how much she knows about Revic's plans and about the organization. But he's purposely shutting off all of the security cameras in the room they're in, arousing her suspicions, which of course leads to Keller getting violent. Tell me everything you know about Donald Revic's organization. Before I tell you anything, I want to know how you're going to protect me. When Revic finds out that I've come here, he's going to try and kill me. Ms. Obris, your best protection is to tell us everything we need to know. As soon as you do, Revic will cease to be a threat to anyone. Not good enough. Revic's people are everywhere. And that scares me. To be honest with you, Kim, the only one you should be afraid of is me. Why should I be afraid of you? I came here of my own free will. When Keller brandishes a pistol, Kim uses her abilities to throw him against the wall, spinning the gun out of his hand and fleeing the room. Keller issues a general order to all security to find and kill the two scanners. Dr. Ruth is upset that Cameron runs off to find Kim rather than helping him see what Consec has on the RIPE program, and the old man goes back in and sits in one of the interrogation rooms, muttering to himself that he knows what has transpired is all his fault, worrying about Cameron and about how he never envisioned ripe happening. Lost in his own thoughts, he doesn't hear Keller enter from behind, and then the security chief executes the scientist with a single gunshot. Ruth's death is felt by Cameron, and it fills him with horror. He links up with Kim, and together they escape the building, confirming that Keller is indeed the mole. 
Vale and Obrist race to a phone booth at a gas station, where Cameron calls into the Consec computer network, linking his mind directly with their digital data. Keller races to the computer lab in order to secure it, and he learns that there's someone who's hacked into their system from the outside, and he begins screaming for his staff to stop them. Cameron, while linked in, can see all of the various doctor's offices and hospitals that Ephemeral is being sent to. He downloads the list mentally and uses his powers then to blow up Consec's network, the results of which end up killing Keller and several technicians as the servers and the terminals in their office explode in a fiery wave. Vale and Obrist end up driving to a small town doctor's office, where one of the names on the list ordered ephemeral. It's being prescribed to pregnant women to ease the symptoms of morning sickness causing a new generation to be turned into scanners. While they're talking in the waiting room, Kim finds herself being scanned by an unborn child while it's still in its mother's womb, confirming that there are more scanners being created. As Cameron and Kim leave, worrying about Revic creating more children with ESP, they are both hit with tranquilizer darts, shot by none other than Revic himself. Cameron wakes up back in the main control office in Revic's area of the biocarbon amalgamate plant. As he comes to, Vale realizes that Revic is sitting with him, waiting for him to wake up to talk to him. Revic assures him that Kim is alright, she's just asleep in the next room, still drugged. Cameron also learns that Keller is dead, and as he accuses Revic of not having loyalty to Ruth, he cites his fallen mentor as a great man. Revic harshly refutes that statement and mocks the deceased doctor, revealing to Cameron that they do indeed share a very special bond. Who's your mother? I don't know. Who's your father? I don't know. What was your first childhood memory? I don't have any. No, you don't. And it's no accident that you don't. You were kept on ice. It wasn't until Consec had trouble putting me away that they thawed you out. You've been monitored every day of your life. Allowed to live like garbage. Scum. He knew where you were, but it wasn't until he needed you that he reached down and hauled you up out of the slime. Who? Your father, Dr. Paul Ruth. Our father. No. You're my brother, Cameron. My kid brother. No. Sit down. I want to show you something. This was a test campaign used in 1947 to market a new product. The product was a drug, a tranquilizer called ephemeral. It was aimed at pregnant women. If it had worked, it would have been marketed all over North America. But the campaign failed, and the drug failed, because it had a side effect on the unborn children, an invisible side effect. It created scanners. Yes. The man who invented ephemeral was very excited by this weird mutation it caused. And so was Consec. They offered to finance his experiments. So he sold him his company and himself. And that man was Dr. Ruth. That was Daddy. Now, I said that the side effects of ephemeral were invisible, but that's not completely true. Daddy could see them. He could see them in us. He had given the prototype of ephemeral to his pregnant wife, our mother, four years before it hit the market, and then again a year later. His children turned out to be difficult until he realized that the only thing that would calm them down was his drug, 
ephemeral. That's why we're older than all the others. Not only older, more powerful. Revik has been purposely turning his fellow scanners into an underground movement, and he's been using his knowledge and his power to make sure that he can quietly grow the number of scanners that exist, creating a secret army that, when the time is right, he will use to take over the world, righting all of the wrongs that he feels have happened to people like Cameron and him. Revik asks Vale to join him, to help him, rule the future with him, after all, they were the first, but Vale wants no part of Revik's violent new world order and shuts the man down, preparing to fight his brother to the death. While Revik is talking, Cameron grabs a paperweight off of his desk and strikes his older brother in the head, kicking off a psychokinetic duel of epic proportions. I've been counting on you for years, Cameron. Tell me you're not going to betray me like all the rest. Tell me you're not. No! All right. We're going to do it the scanner way. I'm going to suck your brain dry. Everything you are is going to become me. You're going to be with me, Cameron, no matter what. After all, brothers should be close, don't you think? What follows next is a disturbing duel that rages through the office, with both brothers inflicting horrific bleeding wounds upon the other, simply using the power of their minds. Revik at first takes some very large hits from Vale, but he's able to continually batter and knock back his younger sibling through the sheer force of his own will. Blood-soaked and injured, Vale ends up dropping to his knees, imitating a martyr's pose as his hands erupt in flames and his eyes burn white, staring at Revik as his own body begins to be engulfed in flames. Power slamming into him, fire leaps up all around Revik and his eyes roll back into his skull, letting out a tortured scream before he slumps to the floor. Hours later, Kim awakens in the next room and wanders into the main office, finding only a charred corpse unrecognizable on the floor in the very spot that Cameron once stood. Across the room, lying next to a couch, she can hear Cameron's voice call to her from underneath a coat. But as she approaches, she only sees Revik sit up, startling her. Although he speaks with Cameron's voice, and his brown eyes have turned blue, just like Cameron's, and the scar between his eyes is completely gone. Cameron has come out on top by sacrificing his own body to put his consciousness inside the form of his late brother. In a tired voice, he assures her, It's me. We've won. As credits begin to roll. So, wow, where do we begin here? Let's talk about what's good. I mean, the acting, which honestly is both a strength in this film and a weakness, too, which I'll dig into. 
Between Magoon and Ironside, you have amazing performances. They dominate every scene that they're in. They sell us on this very crazy notion of people who have these extraordinary powers digging in and chewing the scenery with reckless abandon. Ironside especially, not enough good can be said about his characterization of Daryl Revick, both just from the standpoint of his intensity and just how he is... Well, I wouldn't call him a sympathetic character, more of he's a relatable villain. Now, Cronenberg has stated in a 1992 interview that he really likes to see villains who have a point of view that the audience can see and understand, which furthers the notion that the bad guys all view themselves as the heroes in their own story, and here in Revik's case, you get him. He's the leader of this growing group of superpowered individuals who were used and then abandoned by a heartless corporation that created them, and one with government and military ties that tried to use them. Revik is wanting to start a revolution with himself as the leader, both to take over the world and create something truly new, and he kind of sees himself as this new leader for his people, and he is the next step in something greater when it comes to the course of human evolution. And at the same time, in doing this, he gets to get revenge on those who wronged him, and that would include his very distant and manipulative father, Dr. Ruth. Now, that's another aspect I'll say I really enjoyed about the story itself. You have a classic triangle between your characters here, especially when it comes to the relationship between father and sons. In this case, you have a father who is trying to control the outcome and manipulate his two sons to battle one another, literally for the sake of his own power. Pretty Shakespearean, don't you think? Now, I'll say this, I would be remiss if I didn't come back to mentioning the comparison that we made right at the top to the X-Men, because seriously, how can you not? And for the record, this is a common comparison that many, many film enthusiasts and critics have made long before me, so I am in no way trying to frame this like I'm the only person who's ever come across this point of view, and I'm not the only person who's ever talked about this film that said, hey, these are just like those classic Marvel heroes. Nope, I'm just of a long line of people that happens to agree. I mean, really though, this is the team taking on the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants for control of the world. It breaks down so simply. One group wants to protect and live alongside humanity, and the other wants to dominate and eventually supplant that group. I, I mean, it is X-Men. And honestly, I think it's that similarity that makes this a film that has such legs. Because while the film does show its age at certain points, again, I know, I have to keep pushing that back, we'll get to that in a minute, it's a story that can resonate with audiences, both because of the dynamics between the characters, and especially right now, superhero films are at their cultural zenith. This is for people that can understand you got good guys with powers and bad guys with powers and they're both battling to see who gets to come out on top and of course humanity is rooting for the good guys you want them to win and luckily for us in this case they do
Also, the ending, especially with its concept of bodily sacrifice, that has always struck me as interesting. I'll freely admit, when I first saw the movie back in the day, I sort of was a little confused by the ending. I watched it, I stopped it, and then I went back ten minutes and I rewatched the very final battle over again, because I had not quite gotten the ending until I had gone through a few times, and I realized that the eye color change and the missing scar, it revealed that Cameron actually truly did win. He had sacrificed his own physical form to take over that of Revix. The problem is, and I'll say this, is if you're not paying attention, if you're only casually watching the film, you're doing something else, you're on your phone, you're messing with an iPad, you're scolding a child who's wandered in, it doesn't matter. You might end up seeing this movie and thinking that Revik did come out as the winner because by not paying attention to the subtle changes, excuse the pun, taking it at face value, where you miss the eyes and you miss the lack of scar, it's not actually beyond the pale to think Revik wins. After all, the last threat that he gives his brother is, I'm going to absorb you and you will be a part of me. The scene which is indeed iconic in how it plays out, has definitely aged some. And this is where I get into what I've teased before. This is where the acting kind of fails the film a little, and this is where the film has sort of aged somewhat like milk. Now, don't get me wrong, the bladder special effects that are happening on their faces and bodies, the various squibs that create those bloody wounds, all of that stuff is fine. Looks great, looks still great today. No, actually, what has folks raising more of an eyebrow is the intense and dare I say for lack of a better word, the goofy facial expressions that both Lack and Ironside make when they are psychically duking it out with each other. If you're watching this film and someone who has no frame of reference was to stroll into your space while you were watching that very end scene, I totally would not be shocked if they started to laugh and thought it was ridiculous because they've just walked in no frame of reference and they are not invested in the story so all they see is something that looks wildly ridiculous and truthfully there's not much that can be done you have to admit yeah it's a little bit of goofy but again it cements this as still a wonderfully done b film but this is still a b film so i can hear you out there chris how was the film received well Mixed reactions came from the critics, with most of them pulling negative, which is kind of surprising. Vincent Canby of the New York Times, he once again lived up to my low expectations as a critic. He commented that this is an uproariously revolting film with special effects, the kind that are so outrageous they make you laugh. But then he would go on to complain that the movie has the temerity of trying to have a story to tell, rather than being a straight gore fest, which led to him making the statement that, unfortunately, as the plot thickens so rapidly and so lumpily, that one soon loses the interest in spite of the quite stunning gory special effects to be found here. What? Are you kidding? Roger Ebert was no better. He was equally unenthused, opening his review by stating that Scanners is a new horror film made with enough craft and skill that it could have been good if it could have only made us care about it. What? 
He ends up mocking the film's dedication to being a thriller, claiming that the mystery that our characters are unraveling it's only a big one in the mind of the screenwriter. And then he goes after Cronenberg, noting that he's gathered quite a cult following at this point from his previous low-budget chillers, citing movies like Shivers and The Brood. But on the basis of Scanners, his reputation seems to be overextended. To that end, I can't wrap my head around it. It feels as if I have watched a completely different film than whatever Ebert has watched. Does he have to love it? No, not by any stretch. But to claim that it's hard to care about the story, I find that to be absolute madness. Now, not everyone was down on the film, though. Cart, over at Variety, was far more optimistic, noting that the trick with horror pictures of the day was to conjure up something that audiences haven't yet seen. And to that end, he complimented Scanners on doing just that, noting, if you'll excuse the turn of phrase, that the eye-popping excitement the exploding head act actually brings. While he was a bit puzzled by the ending, he stated that fans of Cronenberg are definitely getting their money's worth when it comes to seeing Scanners. In the end, though, none of these critics would really matter with what they thought, because Scanners opened the weekend of January 14, 1981, and it was a huge draw with audiences. By the time it had finished its run, it had grossed a cool $14.2 million, racking up yet another win for Cronenberg as a director. As for having a legacy, as time has gone on, Scanner's reputation has only gotten better. Critics have gone and commented that the changing politics that the film represents, using the behavior of the various groups of scanners, that can stand in as an allegory for the previous counterculture boomers now buying into Reaganism of the 1980s. Yeah, okay, sure. Or, you know, it simply kicks ass because it's a conspiracy thriller that happens to have battling psychics, but <laughs> to each their own. Now, several sequels have been made, all of them were made in the 90s, and each of them suffers from the law of diminishing returns, with 1991's Scanners 2, The New Order, focusing on the children of both Kim and Cameron, uh, one of which is played by pin star David Hewlett, that one's at least semi-tolerable, what followed the following year in 1992 with Scanners 3, The Takeover, that's just a film, we'll leave it at that, and then... In the coming years, there were a few strange offshoot sequels that were really bizarre, starting with 1994's Scanner Cop, which seriously goes out of the way to posit the question on its box cover art, what would happen if you had a cop who could read your mind and then blow it away? That would have its own sequel that kept the line going, and that came with 1995's Scanners, The Showdown, which would just be Scanner Cop 2. I would recommend none of them. For my money, just stick with Original Recipe. It's the safe and better way to go. But for those of you who are looking to program some sort of film marathon for yourselves, hey, you could do worse. It's still an option. Several different directors have kicked around the notion of making a remake of this film, but none of them, as at least of this recording's date, have come to fruition. And for me, I'm completely fine with that. It's not a perfect film by any stretch, but it's not a bad film, and thus to me it doesn't meet the requirement that necessitates a remake, because while the effects may look a little dated, and while the acting 
is a little over the top, the story is solid and it's still entertaining. So please, Mr. Cronenberg, keep turning down these hipster directors who want to do the same thing that you did 40 years ago, but this time all they want to do is add some CGI. We don't need them. Your version is the good one. For his part, Michael Ironside looks back on the film fondly, because honestly, it was his chance to work with Cronenberg, and it made his career. After he did Scanners, he got so much work. Besides, Revik is such an iconic villain. In spite of the low pay he received, as he added in his 2015 interview, there were no residuals, but it made him the actor he was today and he got to work with a really great director that he respected at the time. So in spite of all the mishaps on set, all of the potential troubles they could have had, he realizes none of it was done maliciously. It was just a bit of fun, low-budget movie making. And it shows that they were all professionals just trying to figure out how to work out the beats together. If only everybody could be as chill and as optimistic as Michael Ironside is, the world would be indeed a greater place. The version of Scanners screened here at the LSCE was the 2001 MGM DVD release, which honestly comes pretty bare bones. It's just the film itself and the official trailer, nothing else. Now, it's not officially out of print, and you can find it still available from some sellers, but the going rate is about $20, which I would tell you is rather steep when you compare what is actually out there for you to get. Especially when you know that there was a loving re-release that was put out by the good folks at the Criterion Collection. They shined the film up with their 2014 Blu-ray version that comes with a 2K transfer of the original film, plus it comes with the documentary called The Scanner's Way, which covers the special effects and the guys who made it happen, and interviews with both Stephen Lack and Michael Ironside, as well as TV interviews with director Cronenberg from the CBC's The Bob McLean Show, plus a cleaned-up restoration of Cronenberg's first film, Stereo, as well as an essay by film critic Kim Newman. Plus, you get trailers, TV, and radio spots from the movie itself, and all of that can be yours on Amazon right now for the low price of $31.96, which is a wonderful deal if you ask me. But if that's too rich for your blood, you can still get all of that same stuff put on a Criterion DVD, and that's available for $15.20, which again, what a steal. Now, just remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you should purchase your movies. We just think in this day and age, it's ever so important to still support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to these films that we all know and love keep releasing that content to us. And honestly, at the end of the day, isn't that just what it's about? Getting more of what you know and love? Besides, in this case, Scanners is such a fun offering, such a must-see for anyone who claims to be a huge fan of Cronenberg and his work, I would simply ask, what are you waiting for? Go out there and get yourself a copy of Scanners today.
So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We do hope you will listen again. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts. Hit us up with a follow. Use that subscribe button. Or hey, do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here. Give you a shout out on this show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please feel free to swing by and check out our website, the lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics available for you to peruse. We've been finally added to Stitcher, so you can find us and give us a spin there if you like. We're also proud to say that we're on Amazon Music, so if you have an account, you can simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on both Podchaser as well as Good Pods. Those are podcast databases for listeners and creators alike. You can find us there, give us a follow and a review if you could please, and hey, just feel free to like any of the lists that we're a part of to give us a boost in those rankings. You see folks, the more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms and then it makes us more searchable. And if we're more searchable, we can then share these wonderful films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? (laughs) Of course you do! If you have any questions for us, any comments, any movies you want us to cover, anything that you think I got wrong, we would love to hear from you. Please send us an email or an audio clip to lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? Well, we use it here. You can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP, or you can find us on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. And we're available on Facebook at Linden Street Cinema Experience. If you'd like to be even more personable, or you wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, please feel free, send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please everyone, take care out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask if you feel like it. Please, stay healthy. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.